Welcome to Call and Character, a podcast for not-so-casual conversation about calling, culture, and other things that make for lives worth living. My name is Davey Henriksen, and I teach at Valparaiso University and serve as director of the Institute for Leadership and Service, the sponsor of this podcast. After a bit of a break, we're kicking off season two of the podcast in earnest. If you're new to the show, please make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes with guests such as Issa Macaulay, Makoto Fujimura, and Jessica Hooten-Wilson. Today, we're hosting a conversation with Alexia Salvatierra, academic dean of the Centro Latino at Fuller Theological Seminary and co-author of Faith-Rooted Organizing, Mobilizing the Church in Service to the World. And now, to the conversation. In many churches and faith communities, faith as a theological concept is a private matter, a practical attitude of belief or trust in God that stands independent of the pursuit of justice in society. In fact, sometimes the very idea of social justice is viewed with suspicion. Conservative churches might worry that calls to social action are replacements for theological reflection or serious personal faith commitments. And progressive churches might worry that those who are suspicious of social justice are simply content with an unjust status quo, unwilling to put their faith into action. Our guest today, Alexia Salvatierra, complicates this divide and argues that grounded, serious theological reflection goes hand in hand with the pursuit of justice in the world. With her co-author, Peter Hutzel, she's written a wonderful book, Faith-Rooted Organizing, Mobilizing the Church in Service to the World. Today, I'm happy to welcome Dr. Salvatierra to the podcast to help us reflect on the church's calling to pursue justice and to consider what principles ought to guide us as we seek the peace of the city in our own troubled times. Dr. Salvatierra is an ordained pastor in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America and is the academic dean of the Centro Latino at Fuller Theological Seminary, as well as the assistant professor of integral mission and global transformation. She works in the areas of immigration, faith-rooted organizing, cross-cultural ministry, and building vital holistic Christian community. For over 11 years, she was the executive director of Clergy and Laity United for Economic Justice, and her book was published by IVP in 2014. So, Alexi, it's wonderful to have you on the podcast. It's wonderful to be here, David. So in your book, you describe a couple different approaches that communities of faith might take to organizing for social action. And you talk about this model of faith-rooted organizing, and you distinguish it from some of the other models. So I'm curious, what sets your approach apart, and why should faith communities take this kind of social action seriously in the first place? So first of all, let me just make a distinction between faith-based organizing and faith-rooted organizing. So faith-based organizing is a way of describing the process of religious communities and institutions getting involved in community organizing. So let me just define community organizing for a minute, that community organizing is bringing people together to create systemic change, the kind of systemic change that you can't create on your own, that you have to come together in order to create. So faith-based organizing refers to the process of congregations, other faith communities getting engaged in organizing. It doesn't say anything about the assumptions underneath the organizing model. So it is an advantage when you are bringing people together to not leave out the religious community. 
because the religious community involves a lot of people. It's a big base, right? I'll never forget a young secular organizer saying to me, you mean you can go there every Sunday morning and you can find people and organize them? <laughs> and I said, well, you can find people. <laughs> Whether or not you can organize them is a different question. But no, you know, the faith community, uh, the World Bank did a study on the role of faith institutions and faith communities in development, in dealing with poverty, and said it just doesn't make any sense to exclude the faith community because the faith community has a reach and a base. So faith-based organizing is talking about that base. How does that base get involved in organizing? Faith-rooted organizing is quite different. It really has to do with the unique contribution of communities of faith to the larger organizing process. So how do you go deep into your wells, your wells of spirituality, your wells of all that faith has to bring, and bring that to the larger process of organizing? So I always say it's organizing as if God is real, and if you're a Christian, and as if Christ is risen. That what are the assumptions underneath that organizing? So the assumptions underneath faith-based organizing can be any set of assumptions. And usually they're a secular set of assumptions, assumptions about power, assumptions about human motivation. But faith-rooted organizing says, what does it look like for our organizing to be completely guided and shaped by our faith from the assumptions on up? Um, and that allows us to contribute all of our unique gifts to the broader movement which we believe is also, when we talk about the Missio Dei, we believe that the broader movement for wherever organizing is about justice, that that's actually God's broader movement. So <laughs> people are engaged in the work of God when they're doing organizing for justice. But the question is, how can our engagement as the church be a testimony of the full love and power of our God? So you show up to church on Sunday, there are people there, but you say, I think the implication is that they may not be ready to be organized or may not be very willing to be organized. Right. That's right. So that was the other half of your question, right? Which yeah. was a very different question, which is why should the church get involved? And I think there are so many different ways of answering that question, but I would just want to start by saying that it is a Greek concept that the body and the soul are two separate entities. The biblical way of looking at human beings is that we are one entity, body and soul. And so Jesus came to save the whole person in the whole family, in the whole community, because we are also not just individuals. We are also families. We are also communities. And so Jesus came, when he sent his disciples out, they didn't just teach, they healed because they had to respond to the needs of both what we would call, what the Greeks would call the body and the soul. So that Jesus was not just about eternal life, he was also about abundant life. And the separation between those two is just not even biblical. And then, of course, that doesn't take us all the way to organizing. It doesn't take us all the way to systemic change to realize that. What takes us to systemic change is the question of stewardship, that we are called to love. There's no question about that. No Christian would disagree. We're called to love. But the question is, how do you love as intelligently and as effectively as you can? You have to use all the gifts that you've been given. And that includes your capacity to influence decision makers. I used to say that if you're in a democracy, you have the gifts of democracy. But I've been working now for many years with people that are not in democracies and who still manage to create systemic change, who still manage to influence decision makers. So if that gift, if that tool has been placed into our hands, why would we not use that tool for all of God's good purposes? 
Great. So I wonder though, since you have focused so much on faith-rooted organizing and you're working in communities of faith and churches, are there unique challenges that you've faced by working in these communities versus say more non-sectarian or secular places? I mean, the practice of community organizing obviously is, is not just rooted in religious communities, but are there unique challenges that you face by focusing on those communities? Oh, yeah, absolutely. One is that there is a tension in all faith traditions between purity and inclusion, that there is this call to come out of the world and to create something pure and holy. And at the same time, there's this call to go deep into the world, particularly when we think about the principle of incarnation. Carl Broughton would say deep in the flesh. I think of Henry Martinez. Henry Martinez was in the Twin Towers on 9-11 when the Twin Towers started to fall and he ran out. He was a young, strong man. On his way down, he saw a heavy disabled man who was sitting on the stairs crying because he couldn't get out and he couldn't get down. And so Henry Martinez, when he ran out, he talked to Jesus, Jesus talked to him and he ran back in and he saved the man who was on the stairs and he saved 24 people before he died. That running back in, that's what Jesus is about. That's the inclusion principle. That's the incarnation principle. But we have this tension between purity and inclusion. And that tension can result when the mix is wrong. I always think about carburetors. I'm going to show my age. <laughs> the carburetors currently runs when it's the right air and gas mix when there used to be carburetors. Anyhow, so when you have the wrong mix, what happens is that religious communities put purity above inclusion which is what the Pharisees did, of course, when Jesus was arguing with them and what he was arguing with them about. And then they pull away from the world and they're suspicious of working in partnership. And the truth is that you don't create systemic change without the broadest possible partnership. So that's one consistent challenge in the church. And part of that challenge is that churches also just don't want to deal with the mess of the larger public arena. When they're in that purity mode, it's not even just that they're suspicious of the larger partnership or public arena. They just don't want to get anywhere near the mess of it. It's too complicated. It's too overwhelming. It's too dirty. They don't want to get anywhere near it. They want to stay in a nice place. But of course, privilege means being able to choose your burdens. If you're born into a wealthy family, you don't have to deal with the burden of a public education system that doesn't work because you can go to a private school. If you're born in a wealthy family and you have health insurance, you don't have to worry about whether a public health system works. You can choose whether you want to take on those burdens. While some of us who were not born into those circumstances are crushed under the burdens of systems that are not effective or fair or logical or humane. And then we're called to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. So it's that awakening to the fact that other people are crushed under those burdens and that we do need to bear each other's burdens that actually moves us beyond this impulse to pull away to a safe and beautiful place. So if some folks maybe are just a passing familiarity with the idea of community organizing, one of the figures that they might be familiar with is Saul Alinsky, who's both famous and infamous maybe for some of his principles and his rules for radicals. And it does seem to be one of the more popular or dominant approaches to broad-based community organizing that we have, at least here in the States. I'm wondering, how would you describe Alinsky's approach to organizing and how would you distinguish your uh, faith-rooted approach from his? So I always like one of my favorite pieces of organizing instruction from Jesus was to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, Matthew 10, 16. 
And I think that Solinsky was a magnificent serpent. I think he was like one of the most effective serpents that have ever existed. But the serpent, half of the serpent dove equation is that to have the shrewdness of a serpent is to take absolutely seriously the carnal and sinful nature of human beings. That human beings often do place their narrow self-interest above everything else. They often do hold on to power at any cost. That's true. And Alinsky was very good at taking that seriously, at being realistic about it, understanding that you need a critical mass of pressure until the pain of not changing is greater than the pain of changing for most people, most of the time to change. But if you think that that's all that people are, is their carnal and sinful selves, you're an atheist because we're all made in the image of God. And that means anybody can be suddenly capable of amazing acts of sacrificial love and moral courage, even a political leader. (laughs) So, uh, and, and the Holy Spirit is alive and well and moving through the world at all times, working on people's hearts. So you can, if you're innocent as a dove, if your heart is open, you can see and you can nurture the potential for people to be more than their carnal selves. And that's dove power. And Alinsky really didn't understand anything about dove power at all. So I think that he got half of it absolutely brilliantly and we should all study him. But he was limited in terms of his larger perspective. I think Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. understood deaf power. So it's not like I came up with it, Lord have mercy, or even that it's just a biblical phrase that we're only now putting. No, it's people have always used deaf power. Bishop Desmond Tutu would be another example, obviously, another leader along those lines. But what we really want is the right use of serpent and dove, the right mix of law and grace. Let me play serpent's advocate for a second. Mm -hmm. It feels at least like we are living in one of the most polarized ages that Mm -hmm. we have had in recent human memory, but at least the last five years, specifically in the States, the divide between red and blue and different regions in the country, political ideologies, things seem to be dividing local communities in half. And so I suppose a pushback maybe from a more Alinsky approach or one with a very low theological anthropology would be, well, we're very sinful as a human race. We're very divided. We can't achieve unity, agreement, even our local communities, which used to be a source of identity and at least a modest unity are divided straight down the middle, 50-50 in many cases. So how can your approach to organizing still have hope to draw out the sort of basic humanity of folks who have all sorts of difference, whether that's religious or political or racial, how do you sustain hope for these sorts of social coalitions when it seems society is more fragmented than ever and the prospects for even a sort of a co-belligerency, let alone a coalition or alliance seem really, really faint? So social contact theory, which of course is, you know, goes back at least 40 years, Social contact theory says that the more relationship that you have, the more that people are able to overcome their differences, right? Real simple, except that it's not always true because it's not just the fact of relationship, it's the quality of relationship. So what I found is that when you get to this level of division, whether it's in a family or a marriage or a society, that you can't talk your way into unity. You have to do your way into unity. What do I mean by that? Brenda Salter-McNeil talks about this in her books. 
as well, which is that you have to engage together, if you are believers, in common acts of joint mission. Because as you do that, you build trust that then allows you to talk across your differences. You can't start by talking across your differences. I'm going to give you an example of what that looks like to engage together in acts of joint mission. But first, I just want to tell you a clarifying story about what I mean by not trying to talk each other into unity. I was giving a workshop, I was giving a training in Fort Collins to a number of people who were the sort of lone activists in their congregations. And they were really hurting. They were frustrated. They were all sort of on the verge of leaving their congregations. And so I said to one of them, well, what does it mean to you to be an activist in your congregation? And she says, I tell them the truth. And I said, well, how's that going for you? (laughs) How do you feel when someone tells you the truth? (laughs) Do you feel connected to them? Do you want to listen to what they have to say? And she, she started laughing, right? I said, you know, let's try another approach. What if instead of telling someone the truth, you were to listen to them, you were to engage them, you were to engage with them in something that mattered to you both. And that was just a really new idea for her. She just hadn't thought of that. But I'm going to give you a very an example of how you do that or what that looks like. Years ago, Orange County, California is an evangelical bastion, and it is also a conservative bastion. It's con- a lot of conservative thought leaders come out of Orange County. It was the first county in the country to have 287G, which was involving local law enforcement and immigration enforcement. So just to tell you something about the place, and I was working with a network of immigrant churches. And so I said to them, what if we were to get these big white mega churches engaged with you in trying to come work for an immigration system that was more effective, logical, just, and humane? And they were just laughing at me. They were like, no, that's, how would that ever happen? So I said, well, let's start by having a pastor's prayer breakfast because pastors have a common vocation. We have common concerns. We have common hopes and dreams for our congregation. So we had a pastor's prayer breakfast with 26 immigrant pastors and 26 non-immigrant pastors, which already right there was a miracle that they were actually all in the same room. And we began to share our pastoral concerns with each other. And, you know, it was the first time that those white pastors had ever heard what it was like to be an immigrant pastor, to have families torn apart to have young people have their dreams dashed, to have families live in fear who are mixed status, citizen and non-citizens in the same marriage and family. So I think there was deep sort of shock not to hear it as a political issue, but to hear this as a pastoral issue. And so then one of the white pastors said, you know, I tried once preaching on immigration and I had like 200, I was preaching biblically on immigration and I had like 200 families leave. And I'm just scared. And the immigrant pastors are like, we know something about fear. (laughs) And then Dr. Juan Martinez, who at that time had the role that I have now as academic dean of Central Latino, he stood up and he said, as Christians, do we live by fear or by faith? Are we people that are called to carry the cross? And everybody just froze. It was just a moment when we were all like, 
oh, yeah. And so then people started talking, well, what would it look like to live by faith and not by fear in this moment? And part of what we decided was that the people in the congregations did not have the same automatic connection that the pastors did, that the pastors understood what it was like to have pastoral concerns. They could stand in each other's shoes, but the people in the congregations did not have that same perspective. So we thought we needed to come up with a project. This was a number of years ago. There was a children's detention center for children caught in the desert. That was before the unaccompanied minors were coming from Central America. They were mostly Mexican children. That they were caught in the desert coming often because a grandmother had died and they were coming to find a mother. And they were in this children's detention center. So we decided that what we would do was a prison ministry to the children who were in this detention center. That we would go do vacation Bible school. We would do baking with them. We would play soccer with them. We would go to bring them to to know Jesus Christ. And I'm prison ministry. Everybody does prison ministry, right? That's not controversial. But it meant that we were bringing immigrant and non-immigrant people together for training, to learn about immigration, to learn about scriptures that had to do with immigration, and to get to know each other as co-volunteers, right? As, As people laboring in the vineyard together. And as that happened, then the people who were not immigrants began to trust the people who were immigrants because they were all Christian leaders doing vacation Bible school together. (laughs) And that made them trust the stories of the kids. They might've had compassion for the kids, but I'm not sure they would have trusted their stories. But when they began hearing from their coworkers, the echoes of those stories, then they began saying, well, what can we do about this? What can we do about it? And that led to some of those big white, all Republican churches doing some serious study, Bible study, and uh, reading a book called Welcoming the Stranger by Matt Sorens and Jenny Yang, who from World Relief, and, you know, really struggling with this this issue. And that ended up forming a coalition called Loving the Stranger, which ended up one of the foundations for what was later called the Evangelical Immigration Table, which was actually the broadest coalition when we formed it in 2012. It was the broadest coalition of evangelicals working on a social justice issue since abolition. So that's just a story about joint mission and what unity and joint mission looks like. So I think we have to stop trying to convince people when we don't trust each other. And we have to begin to get our hands dirty together for the sake of the gospel. And then the trust relationships happen that allow people to talk to each other in deeper ways. So, I mean, we've been talking uh, so far mostly about the church context and about how to get congregants organized to put their faith into action. I want to ask you a question, though, that gets at alliances and coalitions with folks from other traditions or non-religious backgrounds. Mm -hmm. So your book and your work, I mean, even just in evidence in this interview so far, is just steeped and rich theological vocabulary, scriptural references. And it's really a profound testimony, I think, to the depths of the Christian tradition to speak to issues of social concern and social justice. How does this work when you're trying to form coalitions in a community where you also have folks from other religious traditions, from atheists, folks who might be suspicious of any kind of institutionalized religion? Do you find yourself having to translate these theological and religious and scriptural concepts? How does that work when you're trying to form these broad-based coalitions for a social cause? Well, first of all, you know, let's take seriously that we're called to be in the world, even though we're called to not be of the world. Most Christians only talk to Christians. I mean, let's be real, right? 
But how are you going to be in the world and not of the world if you're not in the world? <laughs> right? It's the relationships that you form with people when you're working together that actually create a context for being a witness to the gospel. <laughs> right? Like, let's be real. But because there's been so much bad blood, so much bad blood at this point in history between Christians and, and people outside the church, it takes a while to build a relationship. Again, you have to build trust. So you have to come into a coalition gently. You come in listening. You come in being there in the trenches when people are hurting, just like Jesus was when he sat and ate with the tax gatherers and the prostitutes. You, you be with people, but you don't abandon your unique gifts. That becomes a dialogue and then a negotiation. So uh, this is a story that I'll tell tonight. I, I didn't think I was going to repeat, but I will repeat this one. So we were working on a very large coalition in San Diego on a living wage legislation. And that's legislation for people who don't know a lot about it that benefits working poor families. And we had great broad constituency. We had a great case. We were coming to every Tuesday night to city council meeting and we were giving our talking points and we had convinced 40% of a very conservative city council, but the other members of the council had been heavily invested in to vote against us. And so they weren't listening. I um, mean, they had really stopped listening. So we said to the rest of the coalition, let us have it for a little bit. It's time to stop talking and start praying. And so they were at, you know, the end of their rope. So they were like, sure, what, <laughs> what the hell, you know, try. So we went up and instead of talking, we took the microphone and we prayed. And actually it wasn't just Christians. We had people from other faith traditions that were part of us who also took the microphone and prayed in Hebrew or whatever they were praying in. And we, you know, we, you don't tell people what to pray for, right? People prayed for all different things. They prayed for working poor families. They prayed for the members of the council. They prayed for the well-being of the city, of the shalom of the city. And after a few weeks of doing this, a very conservative member of the city council, conservative evangelical, suddenly voted with us and we won. And when a journalist interviewed him afterwards, he said, why did you vote for the living wage? And he said, I couldn't take being prayed for one more week. Because, you know, he, he, he had talking points. He had armor against the talking points. He didn't have armor against the prayer because he was a man of God. So the prayer went underneath and he had to wrestle with his God. And he took a very risky step to stand by what he believed. So, you know, we were certainly part of a larger coalition and we had to enter into that coalition humbly. But we never let go of the unique gifts that we bring that we bring something different. And we're honest with our friends about that, right? The dance of being in the world and not of the world is being honest, that you can't participate in everything that the world does. And you bring your own unique ways of doing things. But they began, what was very funny working with secular partners, I just have to say this, is always, they're so suspicious of the first time you want to do some crazy thing like this. And then after you do it and it works, they're like, do that thing again. It's like, no, we actually have another, a few other things we can do. We don't just have to do that thing. <laughs> you know, this is a way of being. This is not one particular tactic. So let's look to the future a little bit, which sometimes can be a dire prospect. But looking ahead and thinking about the possibilities, the prospects for effective and virtuous, not just serpent-like community organizing in the U.S., what is your greatest fear about what could happen and what could go wrong? In other words, what's 
what might already be happening or what conditions Mm -hmm. are possible that could provide the biggest obstacle Mm -hmm. to effective faith-rooted organizing for the common good. So let me say, David, that I'm not worried about local communities. Local communities, it's so feasible to find something that we all care about together. We all want to fix the dang streets. School boards are a little more difficult right now, most definitely. But local parents' councils, there's a lot you can do. You all care about your kids together. You want that school to have books and you know, resources. And there's a lot of places to come together in our local communities. And people have not abandoned local institutions. But as soon as we get away from the local, we are in deep trouble in terms of there being two completely different narratives, at least two, but two main ones, two completely different narratives about who to trust and what is true. And there's lots of historical evidence that when that happens, a society is profoundly in danger of not only splintering apart, but of people taking power that don't have the best interests of the society at heart. Those divisions can be easily exploited. I remember being in the gym one day on the stationary bicycle, and there were two TVs playing above me. One was MSNBC and one was Fox. And I watched them for an hour while I was on the bike. And not only did they have different perspectives on the news, they had different news entirely. It was like two different countries were being described. That's scary because at that point, People are very deeply formed. And of course, they're formed now much more by social media than television. But television, not just part of social media, but people are so formed in their worldview by the people that they trust. And the people that they trust on both sides are often playing fast and loose with the truth. Let me be very specific about that. And I do love the people on quote unquote my side, and I do work with them and I do trust them in some deep ways. But there is this practice of clips that are distorted. They're information clips, little video clips, and they're cut off in a certain place or included in a certain place so that you actually don't get the full picture. And both sides play this game. And then it looks like you've seen something that is clearly true that leads very clearly to a certain conclusion. And you think the people who don't come to that conclusion are crazy, but it's actually been pretty artfully manipulated. You know, and I don't really blame the media because they exist on how much attention they get. And there's a lot more competition for attention given the internet. So I understand that they're desperate and they're desperate because they also believe the demonization themselves of the other side. So they believe that they're fighting demons. And people get willing to cut all kinds of corners when they're fighting demons. <laughs> but the problem is you, can't, you cannot have a working democracy where half the country sees the other half as demons. We are in deep trouble on a state and national level, beyond a shadow of a doubt. And I cannot find many people on either side who actually think this is a problem. Both sides think that they're within inches of winning and obliterating the other side and that they don't really need to work together. I'm going to give a little plug to an organization named Braver Angels, which is trying to pull people together across the divide. Braver Angels. But they are really voices shouting in the wilderness in some ways right now. We have been in trouble many times in the history of the world. Many times in the history of the world, we have thought that the whole thing was about to blow up and end. 
And things have gotten, have been much worse than they are right now. So let me be real about that. I don't want to say that because I'm scared that I think we're doomed. I don't think we're doomed. I just think we're in trouble. So we can't leave it with fear. So I'm going to ask you. Oh, we don't walk by fear. We walk by faith, right? (laughs) Exactly. Um, And this world should have blown up a million times. But, you know, so I, I mean, when I was a kid, we had the doomsday. We were always paying attention to the nuclear doomsday clock. We used to do drills when I was in anybody who's as old as I am. When we were in elementary school, they would make us go under the desks and curl up, you know, get ready to kiss ourselves goodbye. What was going to happen if, if the nuclear bomb hit and we were under the comma desks? Like, come on, does that mean anything at all? But you know that we were close to the world blowing up, right? So you know, I I feel like God has always been with us through flood and fire. But I do think we need to take seriously how to build on the opportunities that we have locally and build them to scale. Because I really think that that's the only thing that we can do. We're not. We're not going to um, end the air war. We're going to come together on the ground and then build to scale. That's what's true. So let me ask you to actually expand on that a little bit. And you've already kind of uh, started to move into this by talking about braver angels, but I'd like to invite you to share some exemplars, some really good examples of people or organizations like Braver Angels that you would want to point our listeners to if they wanted to to see good examples of this on the ground of people organizing, accruing social power for the common good and doing it in a way that we could model perhaps in our own local communities. Who would you point folks to in that respect? So I'm a big fan of PICO, which is faith in action. They are Originally a Sololinsky-based organization, but they're actually very creative and flexible. You know, it varies around the country because they're very locally based. So your local people or Faith in Action, they use both those names, may not be what I'm saying, but there's a good chance that they are. There's a good chance that they are working across a very broad spectrum and that they are doing really effective work on the ground. So I would definitely say there's there's four main networks doing community organizing nationally. There's the Industrial Areas Foundation, which is straight uh, vintage Dr. Narolinsky. There's Gamaliel, which is in that direction, but not as far. And then there is DART, which is in the Southeast. And I don't know very much about DART. I've heard some good things about them. And then there's PICO, which is by far the most effective and flexible and open to all that faith brings. So all of those, I would say that the Christian Community Development Association is doing quite amazing work and doing work that goes the full spectrum from direct service to community development, to community organizing, to advocacy. So it's social transformation that doesn't stay in the box, but really finds ways to work with people on the ground. And the Christian Community Development Association is led by a lot of people that are African-American, Hispanic, Asian, Native American. So you really have that sort of full diverse spectrum of Christian leadership in the CCDA. So those would all be examples I would give of people that are doing this kind of bridge building effectively. Thanks. And again, uh, I will again recommend to our listeners, uh, Lexi's co-written book, Faith Rooted Organizing, Mobilizing the Church in Service to the World, published by IVP 2014. Lexi, thanks so much for spending time with us today and for uh, your time also here on campus. As you mentioned earlier, you're going to be giving a talk to students and faculty and staff later tonight. But thanks also for sharing your time with us here on Call and Character. Well, thank you so much, David, for uh, making an opportunity for for this to go out, I really do want to say that 
that we all can contribute, we say in Spanish, our granito de arena, our little grain of sand. And that part of um, what it means to have faith is to say that you don't know where that's going to go, that we each, this is all so big and overwhelming and the internet has made us feel more overwhelmed. It's part of what contributes to our, our fierce warfare is that we just feel so stressed and so overwhelmed. And so I just really want to say to everyone out there, do what you can. Do a little more than is your impulse, <laughs> but you don't have to do it all. That, you know, you do what you can from where you're placed and trust that God is in that. I'll just add amen to that and we'll call it quits. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Call in Character, a podcast from the Institute for Leadership and Service at Valparaiso University. Our production team includes Micah D'Arcangelo and Davey Henriksen. If you have any questions or feedback, please follow us on the Institute's Facebook page or send us an email at lead.serve at valpo.edu. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a comment or rating on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Until next time.